Welcome to Talking in Vain, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. I'm Dawn Behrendt, the Infusion Nurse Educator for the INS, and I'm the host for today's discussion. My guest today is Dr. Renee Bauer. Dr. Bauer is an Associate Professor at Indiana State University, where she has taught an array of classes from assessment to medical surgical nursing. For the past nine years, She's been the director of second-degree students, and since 2016, Dr. Bauer has taught research at Simmons University in Boston to help students who want to become family nurse practitioners. A nurse for more than 25 years, Dr. Bauer has practiced primarily in the field of psychiatric nursing. She has published more than 25 publications and has delivered 30 presentations at local, national, and international levels. She is a member of Sigma Theta Tau, Honor Society, among other organizations such as the National League for Nursing and the Indiana State Board of Nursing. She is currently returning to school to obtain her certification as psychiatric nurse practitioner. Dr. Bauer, thank you so much for being with us today on Talking in Vain. Thank you, Don. Boy, that was very accurate and very uh, honoring. <laughs> I love to introduce my guests, and you have a, a wonderful background and a great practice. Now, you've told me that it's okay to call you Renee, so from here on out, we're gonna, I'm going to address you as Renee. So let's start out by having you tell us how you became interested in psych nursing, and also, will you give us a brief introduction about the patient and the diagnoses that, you, that we see? Okay, well, I'm going to go back some years when I was uh, very young and very eager and probably very naive. I went to nursing school, and I knew that I wanted to help people. Well, in my background, I'd had some complications with pregnancies, and so when I had a full-term successful pregnancy, I thought, gosh, these nurses are so happy in this office. I wish I could do something like that with my life. So I went back to school to be an RN, not knowing whether I could even do it or not even knowing what an RN did, and went through school always knowing I wanted to be that OBGYN nurse. And um, as luck would have it, I got very intimidated with the hospital equipment and some of the procedures and just didn't know, you know, I doubted myself a lot, but the course or the classes ahead of me had some of my peers, and they were working in mental health, and I thought, gosh, they're having such a good time, and they coaxed me to come down and work with them, and one thing led to another, and I just kind of fell in love with the field, and for 25 years, there have been times that I've tried to get away from it, and the psych just pulls me back, so I've never regretted it, and I still hunger for it, so... Basically, I I guess you could say that's what got me into it. And as far as the patients that I see, I see anywhere from mildly depressed to suicidal or from the ages of three until um, the very end. So I've seen autistic, I've seen uh, bipolar, I've seen schizoaffective, I've seen adolescent, I've seen just everything. Wow someone that's never had any background and all of a sudden they've got a tragedy mm-hmm. and they're in a crisis. So just every kind of every kind of scenario you could imagine. Wow. Okay. I'm really glad I'm talking to you today then. You have an excellent background. So let's jump right in. Let's talk about therapeutic conversation. What is it and why is this necessary? 
Well, before, you know, you have relationships and you have communication with your friends, and it's kind of a you talk, I talk, and you kind of fill each other's needs. And you get back and forth, and, you, you know, you disclose yourself, they disclose their self, and, and you're friends and you have relationships. But with a therapeutic communication, it's trying to get um, information out of your client, patient, consumer, whatever you want to call them, and, and you haven't got a lot of time in some cases, so you want to give leads, you want to give openings, you want to make that client understand that they're being heard. So there are mm. certain open-ended things that you can say to them that will not cut off the communication, that only enhance their feelings. And I can give you several ideas if that's what you want about yes. how we perform therapeutic communication, for instance. Um, in psych nursing, and I'm getting ready to do this next week when we back, go back to school to tell these uh, students skills, in psych nursing we don't use those closed questions a lot, like are you in pain, that's a yes or a no, or are you hungry, that's a yes or a no. You know, that just cuts it right there. We use the open-ended questions like tell me what brought you here, or um, how are you feeling about that, or boy, I, I'm sure that that was hard to go through. Uh, tell me more. So we try to give them, you know, we try to open up our sentences to where they feel like they can disclose things. Another thing about therapeutic communication is we can do a little bit of self-disclosure. And um, the students that I work with are always really hesitant about how can I, how much can I tell my patients? And it's like, well, you don't have to disclose everything and you don't have to go into every detail. But you could say something like, I see that you're going through a divorce. You know, it was really hard when um, I had a friend going through a divorce or you might say when an adolescent, um, you're in the hospital and I know your parents are splitting up. I remember my parents split up and what I went through with that. Not knowing, you know, you would never say I know how you feel because that's, right. that's the, you don't know how someone feels. Mm -hmm. But you can say I've been through a similar circumstance and it was hard for me. Okay, so sometimes just knowing that someone might identify with something they're experiencing can open a door for communication. Absolutely. I mm -hmm. remember when my OBGYN, um, she was telling me, or I was, I was conveying to her that I had the baby blues, and she goes, well, I think you've got a, lot of, a little bit of postpartum depression. She goes, you know, I had that with my second one. And then I just kind of opened up and I thought, gosh, this could be normal. I, I'm not alone. So it wanted me, it allowed me to disclose a little bit more, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Now, you mentioned that you've worked with all age groups. So I want to ask you, because this is, in infusion nursing, we have the same thing. We really cover the span of all ages, patients in all care settings, and at many stages of, of care or therapeutics. So how do you work with patients of different ages? And tell us how that's challenging. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that, Dawn. Um, a lot of what I do, I try to reflect back on Eric Erickson and his stages of life and crisis. And um, I try to think about where they're at in their age. And um, we had had the conversation, you and I, about how the world is really tough. So if I'm talking mm -hmm. to an adolescent, I try to find out what their hobbies are, what their friends are like, how their family is, you know, do they like their teachers at school, you know, are they involved in any activities or sports. Um, maybe with um, my students 
that I uh, talk to at the university, I might say, you know, are you married, engaged, do you have a boyfriend, um, tell me why you want to be a nurse. You know, that's a really good opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me, if, have you ever thought about psych? If someone's older, let's say that they've just retired, I might say, what, what's going to keep you busy now? What are your hobbies? Uh, tell me about your friends. Uh, are you going to vacation? Are you that type of person? And then if they're really older and they're pretty sedentary, I might ask about their shows or if they get lonely or, um, you know, kind of see where they're coming from about their relatives, you know, have they lost relatives or do they keep in contact with their close relatives, things like that. I see. Okay. So you really meet them. You you seek to find out where they are, what interests they have, what other things they're dealing with, and um, you meet them at the level that they're that they're at. Okay. Oh yeah. Definitely. Okay. The next thing, I think this one is going to be an interesting dis- part of our discussion. Let's talk about media and dispelling some of the beliefs regarding psych. And what might we do to combat some of the myths? Oh gosh, I'm so glad that you asked that. Uh, kids come to me; they're really scared and terrified about doing those psych clinicals, and they have um, they have you know TV images in their head about people throwing chairs and people being dangerous and things like that. And everybody always says, what if I say the wrong thing? And I tell them, number one, knock on wood, none of the students have ever been hurt in my clinical. And number Mm -hmm. two, that we've all said the wrong thing. And I said, if we believe that we were saying the wrong thing, the client will redirect us or they'll just say, I don't want to talk about that. Um, It really breaks my heart about media because it it just shows extremes. Uh, maybe um, I wanted to tell you today about, um, I, I can't think of the movie right off the top of my hand. It's all Hollywood. A Beautiful Mind. Yes, A Beautiful Mind. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of truth in that, but there's a lot of fiction. I mean, he really had a very challenging life being uh, schizophrenic and winning the Nobel Prize and, mm-hmm. and going going through life. So I, I try to say that not an illness doesn't, one size doesn't fit all. People are individual. They have individual illness. You can't say that this is what depression looks like or this is what cancer looks like or this is what bipolar looks like because they're all unique in how they present with these illnesses, and there's different ranges. So um, I really I really want to tell people that we're emotionally, mentally made people. We're holistic. So we've all had things that have bothered us mentally or emotionally or something like that, or we know of someone or we have a relative and we can't just compartmentalize and not deal with the whole person. Mm -hmm. So I really want people to know that. I like what you just said about working with the whole person. And I'm wondering if some of your patients um, get a new understanding even of themselves when they, they realize uh, that we that we do need to treat their their whole person, and that they need to look at themselves in that way as well. Yeah, sometimes they do. Um, that that reminds me that's triggered me to an instance about three weeks ago when I was on an adolescent unit, and I had one brave girl, and she was so insightful. We call it insight when you kind of know that there are things brewing or that you're a certain way. And she was talking about the bravery of herself and dealing with her own issues. And it's like we try to cover these issues up, and it's like we have to put on this perfect facade. And it's like she was brave enough to come up and say, I want to work on this. 
you know, and I want to get this out, and I want, I want to kind of heal. But the bravery of the adolescence, really, I mean, it just blows me away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. So, again, I'm going to reflect back on the infusion nurse, um, our members who are listening right now. Um, many of them care for patients that they uh, spend an hour with once a week. Sometimes they spend four hours once a week. Sometimes they see them every few days. And often the relationship that they have with the patient goes on for months, if not years. And they do have time at the bedside occasionally to sit and listen. And I'd like you to talk to us about listening and tell us how we can listen therapeutically and why is listening so important. Well, I think listening, we don't listen enough, really. Um, But I think if we really want to know the total well-being and and how our patient is doing, we just need to sit there and listen. Sometimes it's the things that they're not saying. Like Mm -hmm. I said the other day, sometimes they have themes that keep coming up in the conversation, and it's like, wow, you really have a problem with this, don't you? And um, just their behaviors. I know that sometimes I've had patients that appear to be really angry and it's like wow um and it just comes to me it's like you and i might say it you've been really hurt haven't you mm. and a lot of times these macho like adolescent guys will say yeah i have you know it was really tough growing up and and my parents don't listen or they they yell at me or they don't give me any positive regard and um a lot of times the anger is covering up something deep so if if we don't listen, we're not going to pick up on that. We're just going to maybe personalize it into us, and it's not really us. Something I could do if I was sitting for a long time with a patient with an infusion, I would have them tell me about their history. Did they work? You know, what did their husband do? Did they have children? You know, what did they find? What was joyful about that? Or was there anything that they could change if they had it to do all over again maybe? You know, if... If you learned one thing, what would you say? And just ask them those questions. You know, just kind of pick their brain, see where they're coming from. Okay. So sometimes in our day-to-day work life, we kind of get into routines and we um, complete the tasks that are at hand. And those routines can sometimes take us out of a place of being present with the patient. So can you give us some tips? on how to, how to be present. And it doesn't, I'm not talking about long stretches of time, even just present for five minutes. How can, how can we trigger that in us so that we really are there and intentive? Wow, that's, that's good. I mean, I know I've done the same thing, especially if I've got, uh, you know, being bombarded with tasks and things. But I guess you just need to go in and remember you know, and just set and, and maybe reflect for a minute before you see that patient about being being aware, right? I guess we need to make it a, a habit until it comes natural to be present. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I'm sure that there's people that we're going to bond with and some that we're not going to bond as much with. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember um, where I was. I think it was at a recent conference. Um, where someone said they used the time where they hand gel, and while they're rubbing that hand gel in, they use that time to prepare themselves to think about what they're doing, 
right there with that patient. And it, it kind of slows them down because they have to take the number of seconds it takes to work that hand gel in to, to do the hand hygiene. And um, that's kind of their setup time, of putting their mind in a framework of listening and being present. So I thought that was a great tip to take home with as well. That is good. Or, or if you're an infusion nurse, could you take that time in the car before you see your next patient and mm-hmm. just kind of visualize what you want to say or you know, something positive, it might be something in the news that's positive, my goodness, that would be hard. (laughs) (laughs) On some days. You know, maybe the spring is coming and you're thinking about that or taking a vacation or you've got a picture or maybe they've had a grandchild or what have you and that you could focus on something positive like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. So let's kind of step away from that part of our conversation. And I want to talk to you about something else. Um, how can we ensure that our patients are not being judged by us, um, that is the nurse or, or any part of the care team, and how do we establish trust? And maybe those are two separate things, but um, making sure that, that we're not judging, helping us to understand who they are, and then secondly, establishing trust with that patient. Well, that's kind of ironic that you should say that because I remember not too long ago I had a a patient at the hospital and I straight out asked them, I said, have you ever felt that you've been judged by the healthcare team? And they just gave me examples to where they they, uh, felt that they were judged and I asked them what could a, a caregiver do that you would believe in or that you would trust and what can they do? And most of the time they tell me it's that caregiver that shows concern and they can kind of tell. They can tell from our actions and our face and how we respond to things, whether we're judging them and whether we're present with them or whether they're not. Mm. And I try, to, I try to be very honest with them, and I might ask them something like, you know, it looks like you, you've been using for a while or you've been shooting up. And I said, please tell me how this all got from this point to, you know, what started all of this. If you feel like telling me, I'd like, I'd like to know. So, um, and then, and as far as being judged, I always tell them that we've all got things that we're not proud of. You know, every human has mm-hmm. things that they're not proud of. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly different degrees. But um, our job is not to judge. It's just to help us understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, too, um, you mentioned so many things about you know, who we are in that room and our tone, our facial look, but sometimes it's even in our touch and and certainly in the world of infusion nursing, you know, there is some piece of that where we we have our hand on, on the patient's arm or hand or something and just even in that, there's so much that can get conveyed with touch, um, the right touch, um, even in doing the work that we do. Um, so that's a good reflection as well, I think. Um, we're very careful in my line of work about mm-hmm. touch. Oh. Um, you know, there there's certain age groups. Um, I would say elderly. Sometimes a side hug is good. Mm. Um, we're very. We have to be very guarded about our touch. I know. Um, even closeness, even our boundaries, we, we have to watch. We have to watch other people's boundaries. Uh, nurses in psych are redirecting. That's a little bit different. Um, sometimes 
uh, there's a danger of inappropriate touch. So we're on the lookout for that. Certainly. And, of course, we want to bond with our patients, but we mm-hmm. don't want them dependent on us. Mm-hmm. So um, we're, we're very careful about our touch, too. A lot of the, the nursing students aren't comfortable with touching other people, but that's a big part of what we do. So I think little by little they get a little bit used to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have another question for you, and I'm, I'm curious to know how you're going to answer this one. Um, but I believe that there is stigma that um, comes along with any psychiatric diagnosis, even if it's something as small as you said at the beginning, although it's not small, is mild depression. So how do we overcome stigma? And tell us a little bit more about what the stigma is. Yeah, I try to uh, lecture that. I, I say that a lot in my lectures initially why there's such a stigma with mental health with mental health and that's because we label people as, you know, they're crazy, they're they're um you know, there's something wrong with them, their brain's messed up. It's like we almost make fun of that. And it's like I say it's really ignorance because your brain is an organ like any other organ and if it doesn't have the proper chemicals or the proper nutrients it's not gonna function. Mm-hmm. And um, the stigma is something that it's 2019, and it's not gotten really that much better. We don't portray mental health on TV. I mean, nobody wants to see it um, like it really is because it's not that maybe entertaining always, and we just see the extremes of it, which, you know, that's not accurate. So as far as stigma, I think it's really important maybe to educate in grade school about, you know, our bodies and and what our bodies do and and healthy minds, healthy bodies. Boy, that sounds like a campaign slogan. (laughs) Healthy minds, healthy bodies. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm really passionate about stigma, especially lately, because so many people end their life, and it's like, wow, you could have used some help. You know, it didn't have to come to this. And just this weekend, I went to visit our um, mental health center in Terre Haute, and um, a tragedy had happened, and we're just sitting there reflecting, and we're going, oh, my gosh, we need to be kinder to each other, and we Mm. need to be alert and aware that, hey, you need to get help, and there's nothing wrong with that. So Mm. it just saddens me. So if you're diabetic, you're going to take insulin. If you've got a tendency to be depressed, you can take an antidepressant. And you can exercise and you can eat right, and there's so many things that you can do. And it's just sad to me that we keep this a secret. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. I think that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about incidents. You know, how how prevalent are our, our psychiatric needs or our uh, um, diagnoses? or psychiatric diagnosis, um, it's more than what we think. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, that's that's just that's an overwhelming question because when I got into this 25 years ago, I, I know that there's probably always been a need, but I'm just so aware of it now because I'm aware of it with my students and I'm aware of it with the patients and I'm aware of it with our opioid crisis and I, I just see it all around and the stresses people have. 
and we had this conversation last night, me and another colleague, and she was talking about how to help our students. And, and I said to my colleague, you know, we can't, we can help them, but we can't be their therapist. We just can't because we need, you know, we need to give them education. We can guide them and direct them, but sometimes it takes so much time and they want us to be their therapist, we, mm-hmm. but we can't be in that role too. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of a boundary blurring. Sure. But we have to refer out and we have to make sure that these people follow up. But I think we live in really tough times. Right, right. I, and um, in our conversations that we had prior to this podcast, I think we, we touched on that, that there's this part about being human um, that is very hard. That's that's challenging, and we we work through things constantly, and we just never know that that person sitting next to us might really be struggling with something. Um, perhaps just developing a better understanding and a broader understanding regarding stigma, and um, being more open. Yeah, and and it doesn't you know you don't always have to just pry into what other people are doing, but if they've had some hits in life, um, just just being open to asking them, has that been affecting you, or how did you deal with that? You know, being concerned and caring, you know, not, not just being nosy, but how mm-hmm. are you doing with that? Mm-hmm. You know, that's pretty tough. How are you doing with that? And I think that you can you can get a buy-in of trust and just really care about them, you know? Certainly. All right, let's... Uh, I want to look at something else here. Um, this is a little bit different, but it, it has to do with being a partner with your patient um, and, and what that consists of and getting away from paternalistic thinking. And I think we were almost heading in that direction in the, in the earlier part of our conversation. So how do we, if, if someone has a diagnosis and they have a care team, and let's pretend um, I'm the infusion nurse, and a part of um, that that care team, you know, how do we partner with that patient? Well, you know what, I'm glad that you brought that up because it, it reminds me of what I went through with my motivational interview training. And one of the things that we do is when we know information, we, instead of just barking at them or just giving them orders or just, you know, uh, beating them with information, you might say to that patient, hey, is it okay if I give you some information about this? Or would you be open to something that I, know, I learned about this, about a correlation between drinking and high blood pressure? So you kind of ask permission to give them education instead of just saying, you know, I, I know everything and you don't. You know, I'm the one in control here. Mm-hmm. So you kind of partner with them and you ask, uh, can I have permission to give you a little education about that? And um, if they say, no, I'm not interested, or sure, what would you like to tell me? Just kind of... Um, Show it from that angle and give them little things that you think might help them. And, of course, um, nurses and patients, they can always work on goals together. Like what, what is something that you think that you could do, you know, that might improve your breathing or, or what's something that you could do that might help your sleeping be a little bit better? Mm-hmm. And just kind of get them to come up with their own solutions like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now you mentioned motivational interviewing. Tell us more about that. What what are exactly are you talking about? And give us some examples. Okay, I'll tell you. In motivational interviewing, um, it's it's a, a partnership, of course. And I have what is called in my little toolbox a readiness ruler. 
So, like, let's just say someone's smoking, and you might talk to them about smoking, and you might ask, you know, would you like some information on that? And there's all kinds of things that can help us these days. It's not like it used to be when you it was just, you know, white-knuckle quitting and stuff. And, and you might ask them, let's say I've got a ruler here, and zero is not wanting to quit, and ten is like I'm quitting, you know, in five minutes. Where are you on that readiness mm. ruler? And let's say that they say, I'm at a seven, and they said, you're at a seven out of ten about that you'd want to quit? And they say, yeah, I'd say it's about a seven. And then you say to them, well, you said a seven, why not a five? And they might say, well, I'm a seven, maybe because I can't breathe as well, or maybe because I don't have the extra money. And then you work with them at their seven and say, hey, how do you think we could maybe get to an eight? You know, what are some things that we could do? And just kind of you take your time, you're patient, you might set goals with them, you might have a goal for a couple weeks, you might have a goal in a month, but just kind of like see where they're at on that scale and, of course, um, stay away from the I know it all to, hey, how can I help you with this or how can Mm -hmm. we partner? Mm -hmm. And um, just little things, right? I mean, if we try to just cold turkey things, then people get discouraged and they don't want to do it. So, Renee, as a practitioner, if you find someone who um, really has no indication that they want to change or improve some aspect of of their uh, set of needs, uh, maybe a behavior that does need to be um, addressed, what is what is the next tact? You know, what do you do after that? You keep assessing and you say, have you changed your mind? Are you still okay where you're at? And just meet them again where they're at. And just um, just remember that you're not in control that they are. So, you know, maybe that's really how they want to live their life. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just accept that. You have mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Maybe you focus on the other positives. That was another thing that I want to say. I want to say, Tell me what you've accomplished in your life. What have you felt proud of? What did you think that you couldn't do that maybe that you did? And how did you accomplish that? That's mm-hmm. another direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you accomplish that? So we're, we're focusing on um, previous successes yeah. and building yeah, on those past, successes. Past successes, past goals. Like, hey, you know, one time I lost weight and I was able to get in this outfit or you know, and it didn't happen overnight, but with little steps, you know, you made a progress to it, and then it became a life uh, way of life, not just mm-hmm. a habit. Mm-hmm. So we have so much we can talk about. I still have a few more questions, if that's okay with you. We'll keep on oh, going. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about self-disclosure. And I, I think we've talked just a bit about, you know, how the the nurse or the clinician um, can therapeutically use a, a piece of disclosure to uh, kind of open a door of communication. Is there more that you want to tell us about that topic? Well, I think that I, I can only tell you from my frame of reference. Um, let me give you an example. Last semester, I had a group of young, mostly women nursing students coming into the psychiatric facility and the, the patients, some of the patients, not all of the patients, but maybe it was one patient, said, well, I know in order to be a nurse, you have to be young and pretty. And that was their perception. And mm-hmm. it's like um, they, they look sometimes at people 
that have that professional facade and think, wow, you've got it all together. You don't have stress in your life. Um, you don't have any problems. How could you relate to me? Um, I'm probably a loser to you. You know, they're just very concerned and just um, almost embarrassed that they're in the hospital and you're not. And mm. then we have to just kind of tell them, oh, no, you know, we've got things that we have to work on. We've had rough spots in life. I've told people before, you know, about my breast cancer, and I don't keep that a secret. It's just like, you know, that's that's life. We have battles. We have struggles. Um, we all, as humans, we have problems. So everybody on Earth has had, you know, things that they've had to deal with. So we, we try to get them to feel like they're not the only ones that have gone through suffering. We, we have as humans. So just try to, to make them uh, see that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? I'm not sure whether that. It, it did. It, very, very good. All right. I have another one. And this one I think is a little bit complicated, but um, I'm interested to see how you're going to address this. So I want to understand more about genetics and how we are or if we are predisposed to some illnesses. Oh, gosh. In my, in my heart of hearts, I want to say yes. Uh, in my book, in my psychiatric book, they call it the diathesis stress model. And it's the best explanation that we've got that will um, explain an illness and a mental illness. It's like you've got a genetic predisposition for something genetically, and then you've got your life circumstance, and boom. It's like the deck is stacked, and there it goes. Well, someone else, um, it might not um, materialize in, but it did in you. And several of the clients that I see, um, especially with schizoaffective or schizophrenia, I'll see I'll see a parent or I'll see an uncle, and I'll just see it come up again. So I'm going to say we're a lot of times large products of our genetics and what we've been given, but we can also do things to combat that too. It's like knowing that. I have this predisposition doesn't mean that I'm going to make it full-blown. Or sometimes, knowing that, I'm going to ha- get a handle on it now so it doesn't blow into that, right? So um, knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in my mind, I can't help but correlate this to, like, cardiac illness. That, you know, sometimes we have some things that ride along with our heredity, and that oh, yeah. kind of predispose us to uh, conditions of the heart. So in what you've just described, say if we do certain things, we can uh, kind of mitigate you know, what genetics has put on our plate and exactly. perhaps change how um, what the, the outcomes of our health. Um, and it sounds like, to me like you're describing this is the same, as far as well, our mental absolutely. health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, we do a lot in primary prevention, primary, secondary, tertiary prevention. So I want to see at the little kids' level that educating them that sometimes people uh, have more than, let's use depression, more than a bad day, something that you just can't shake yourself out of. So, um, you know, what are your signs? Uh, looking for those signs, being aware, you know, are there times that you can't sleep? Are there times that you're overeating, undereating? Just extremes like that. So being aware, aha, 
you know, maybe my mom's got depression. Maybe that's why she's irritable. Or, aha, maybe that's why Grandpa was always crabby. You know, maybe he was depressed. Just, you know, just being aware of things like mm-hmm. that and, mm-hmm. and knowing that, hey, um, an illness isn't just a body illness. It can be a mind illness, too. Perfect. Perfect. I like your explanation. So I have reached the end of my list of questions, although, as I said earlier, it's really clear to me that we've probably just touched the surface of this topic and could go on for a long time. Um, I'm wondering if you would be interested in coming back again to continue this discussion. Oh, I'd love to. I'd like to know what people's passions are. I always, as a psychiatric nurse, I want to know what makes people tick, you know, what motivates them to do things, uh, what what can inspire them. I know I've had a lot of people inspire me, even my patients, even my students. So um, just whatever people are interested in. But I, I love mental health and, and those things and, and the great medicines, the great doctors, the great care that people are getting these sure, days. Sure, sure. try to get it. I think, and I've said this a few times throughout our conversation, our infusion nurses work with all ages, all places of care, all areas of care, all settings. And um, we may be giving an infusion of antibiotic, but we're also dealing with the whole person. And it helps us to just consider the rest of the package, the rest of what's coming along with that patient and how we might um, have an effect on this patient who is struggling um, with some mental health issues, who has some problems. And and we are a part of that care team and need to see ourselves in that respect. Is there anything else? You know what, Dawn? Oh, can go I ahead. Just, can I just tack along onto that? Sure. Let's say they are getting an, an infusion, and let's say that they've just acquired an illness, so they, they're they going through the stage of maybe grieving a healthy body and going into a body that wasn't doing what it used to be doing. So it's not even just what you would think of as a mental illness. It's it's about loss and grieving and anxiety and the whole gamut. Mm-hmm. And that just takes us right back to the beginning. Nursing diagnosis, <laughs> yeah. you know, doing an assessment and um, an evaluation, um, applying some interventions, and then evaluating yet again. Um, so you're, you're taking us all the way back to the fundamentals of nursing. So that is excellent here. So I know we have really reached time today, and we do need to close. I thank you so much. I look forward to uh, continuing our discussion again, and maybe we'll um, construct our questions and our content in a little different way the next time we meet. I certainly appreciate that you took the time today to share your expertise. It's really been a pleasure, and thank you so much, Dawn. Okay, let's wrap up for now until we talk again. And this concludes our session today on Talking in Vain. 